91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. The philosopher, scholar of African-American studies, and activist Dr. Cornell West was in Seattle on Sunday and spoke on the prophetic tradition in the face of neo-fascism. Valley and Mountain Fellowship hosted Dr. West as part of their Set Us Free from Fear series. Reverend Dosajifo Seku, co-convener of Valley and Mountain Fellowship, introduces Dr. Cornell West next. Good morning. My name is Reverend Osajifo Seku. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Valley and Mountain, the best church in the whole wide world. <laughs> T.S. Eliot in 1919 wrote an essay. It's individual and tradition. And he says in the essay, the tradition is not something that is inherited, but it is acquired with great labor. In fact, if tradition is something that simply passes down from generation to generation, it should cease to exist. But it's the ways in which we situate ourselves within the context of a tradition. Our speaker on this morning, I have known 30 years. And we have shared many jail cells <laughs> around the country. You do not understand who he is, although he has a PhD from Princeton. He graduated in three years from Harvard with a degree in Near Eastern languages, while he has written and authored over some 20 books. He's ultimately the child of Clifton and Irene West. And he will tell you who he is because somebody loved him deeply and that he has made a certain set of commitments based on a tradition that is bigger than himself and that is older than himself. He would lecture at the University of Paris with the great philosopher Deleuze. He has taught at Harvard and had the courage to walk away from the intellectual seat of the American empire simply because they disrespected him. That is a level of political integrity and courage that is rare in this nation in which we live. He currently teaches at the greatest seminary in all of America, <laughs> at the Union Theological Seminary. All right. <laughs> but above all, he is my friend. That in a time when so many folks are preoccupied with celebrity and access, that when I've been in trouble, I've been able to call him and to come, he would come and see about me. I have watched him miss airplanes talking to the janitor in the airport because he loves us that much. He has a deep commitment to the musical tradition. He is in love with John Coltrane and Curtis Mayfield. And that because they serve as the sonic landscape of the way in which he orientates himself to the world, we find ourselves here. This is his second time here at Valley Mountain. The first was during the pandemic online. We are honored to have him uh, with us today. Will you put your hands together and give a big old Seattle welcome to my friend and my brother, Dr. Cornell West.
Oh, what a blessing to be here. I salute each and every conceited. My dear brother, Reverend Seychou, he is my brother. <laughs> and I want to be very honest with you. I would take a bullet for that brother. When I first met him, he was 22 years old. He was on the panel at the University of Tennessee. He had so much fire. I could tell in the language of Ashford and Simpson, he was a real thing. <laughs> I went up to him and I said, my dear brother, we're going to spend some good time together. And 30 years later, that's how good God is. 30 years later. I got his book, Urban Souls, was published 23 years ago. I was blessed to write the foreword. We went off on a variety of different retreats, and it's true that we've been arrested in, in, in jail so many times it's hard to count. But we sing in harmony in the cell. I have a great love for this brother, profound respect for this brother. And I was so very blessed to meet my dear sister, Dr. Deanza Spaulding. Let's give it up for her. Let's give it up for her. because you see, we live in such grim and bleak times where we need something more than language and the only thing beyond language is silence, song, love, and light. And without something beyond language, language itself is so subject to being colonized and bastardized, manipulated. If you really want human to human, soul to soul, person to person, a lot of times, the only thing we have left is the music. And that's very, very much the history of the tradition that Brother Sekou was talking about that I come from. I've always viewed myself first and foremost of trying to aspire to the condition of the musicians that have fundamental, fundamentally shaped and molded me. And by musicians, I'm not just talking about those who have acoustic expression. My dear mother was a musician. Irene B. West in the life that she lived because music is about wrestling with the interplay between dissonance and resolution. It's about making sure you have the right tempo and right timing and right tone in how you relate to others. No accident that Plato himself, the only time Plato ever mentions the word musical life is in Lachis, his dialogue about what is courage. And he says the most courageous person, we would add the most compassionate person, he says, lives the most musical life imaginable. Fascinating. My father, Clifton West, and I must say that each time I come to Seattle, I I have to take note because it was in this town where I received a call that my father had died. I was just checking in the hotel downtown 29 years ago in Seattle, and I got the call that dad had passed. And I always associate Seattle with Jimi Hendrix and Ray Charles and others. Maybe a little Pearl Jam, too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I was telling my beloved wife, Anahita, about uh, 
these memories. And dad was a musician too. Why? Because you can't be a serious musician if you're not willing to be vulnerable and open your heart and your mind and your soul in doing the language of the great William Butler Yeats when he said, it takes more courage to dig deep in the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. That's courage, fearlessness, willing to lift your voice, and that is the anthem of black people. Lift every voice. That's right. Not lift every echo. We live in a culture of echoes, silos, echoes. What do you think? Turn on TV and see how people are thinking for you. It could be mean-spirited and cold-hearted, escalating neo-fascism on Fox News. It could be the milquetoast neoliberals on CNN and MSNBC. <laughs> How do I think? Think for yourself. Find your own voice. Be an original. Don't be a copy. Yes, that is the tradition from whence I come, my dear brother. And it's hard to find in the modern world a people who've been so hated for 400 years every day, every week, every month, every year and still dish out love warriors every generation. When you see Brother Sekou, he's a love warrior. A love warrior. And a love warrior is inseparable, but deeper than just a justice seeker. Any justice that's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice if you don't care for the people, have a concern for people, have a deep love for people, a willingness to take a risk, a willingness to sacrifice for people, then your choice of justice is just a life choice, maybe linked to your career, but it has little to do with the folk who are in need. Because if you're a serious love warrior, then you hate the fact that people are treated unjustly. You loathe the fact that people are treated unfairly. And if you don't do something, the rocks are going to shout out. Yes, that's one of the great gifts of our precious Jewish brothers and sisters in Hebrew scripture. Tell us about Amos. Tell us about Esther. Tell us about Isaiah. Hesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast love targeting the orphan and the widow and the fatherless and the motherless and the subjugated and the degraded, the least of these in the language of that Palestinian Jew named Jesus who means so much to me. Our Muslim brothers and sisters understand what I'm talking about. You don't get a Malcolm X without that fundamental commitment to those Franz Fanon called the wretched of the earth. And you look at the world through the lens of their doings and their sufferings and their rich humanity and the fact that they ought to be at the center, at the core of how we orient our lives, which means you will always be in the world but not of it because the world is fundamentally driven by organized greed and institutionalized hatred and routinized indifference.
William James, the most adorable of all American public philosophers, used to say, indifference is the one trait that makes the very angels weep. Or the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. When you look around, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, my own beloved Sacramento, and we ain't got to Arkansas yet. You see too much organized greed. The wickedness, especially in high places, though the wickedness is shot through each and every one of us. That organized greed, institutionalized profit-making that puts human needs in a secondary and tertiary spot. And it's all about money, 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 profit, profit, profit. Or as Wu-Tang Clan says, it's about cream. Cash rules. But it doesn't have to rule me. It's around me. The great Howard Thurman, who was the teacher of Martin Luther King Jr., we got Brother Drew here writing a magnificent book on Martin Luther King Jr. and ecological crisis, called it The Hounds of Hell. And it's no accident that we're living in a moment of such spiritual decay and moral decadence because of greed and indifference and hatred and contempt and thinking somehow our destiny is not inextricably woven with the destiny of folk who are catching hell every day, be they homeless, be they targeted as precious trans, gay brothers, lesbian sisters, black folk, indigenous precious brothers and sisters, immigrants, women cross the board. And this is not cheap PC chit-chat I'm talking about. It sits at the very center of the future, not just of the American empire, but we know also the future of the planet. We're living in a generation where it's possible to see and behold the end of the planet, the end of the species, the end of American democracy, the end of any kind of integrity, honesty, and decency mediating relationships as opposed to manipulation and subjugation and arrogance and condescension. And that's one of the reasons, again, why the musicians are so concerned. 20th century is the most barbaric century of recorded time. 150 million fellow human beings killed in that century with the most sophisticated technology and the most bestial attitudes toward the least of these. Be in Africa, be in Asia, in the heart of Europe, the Holocaust, disproportionately precious Jews, but also gay brothers and lesbian sisters, also socialists and communists, also some German descendants like the Dietrich Bonhoeffers and others, but primarily Jewish brothers and sisters. What a century. What does the 21st century have to offer? 
Will we produce love warriors that embrace justice but are deeper than just justice seekers? Will we face terror in such a way that we can produce freedom fighters? One of the great history lessons of black people is how could black people be terrorized for 400 years and not produce a black version of the Ku Klux Klan? a serious question. If black folk had decided to do that, there'd be a civil war every generation. There'd be civic terrors in every chocolate corner of the empire, of the society. But no, in the face of all of that terror, here comes Harriet Tubman. Here comes Frederick Douglass. Here comes Martin Luther King Jr. Here comes Fannie Lou Hamer. Here comes Ella Baker. Here comes the love supreme of John Coltrane. Here comes beloved of Toni Morrison. And we ain't got to Donnie Hathaway yet. Oh, what is it about these people? And it's not a function of skin pigmentation. Because we got a whole history of black gangsters and black thugs, too. And I got a lot of gangster and thuggish activity in me. I just want to be honest about that. All of us wrestling with the civil war on the battlefield of our own souls. Because the greed inside of me, the hatred inside of me, the contempt inside of me, the indifference inside of me has to be conquered every day. It's a human affair, and we don't do it by ourselves. You have to have a community like Valley and Mountain. You have to have other folk reinforcing the best in you. Our vanilla sister Dorothy Day, Catholic sister, wrote a magnificent eulogy for Martin Luther King Jr. on April 5th, 1968. And the Catholic worker, she said one sentence, Martin Luther King Jr. learned how to die daily. Drop the mic. That's all she needs. <laughs> die daily. They try to kill, push back the hatred and the greed, and the contempt, and the indifference, and the resentment, and the envy. And it's a continual and perennial process. And then you join with others across religion, across gender, across sexual orientation, across color, across national boundaries. You come together and say, let us see whether we can create some possibilities for love, for freedom, for joy. Because when you're traumatized, you've got to be fortified in order to be a joy spreader. And I could just mention Louis Armstrong's name and sit down. All that joy flowing out of him all the time. Yet Ozzie Davis said what? He said, Louis Armstrong was the saddest man I ever met. That juxtaposition, that entanglement of profound joy and profound sadness. That's why I want to suggest in many ways, now that the whole empire has the blues, now that the whole planet has the blues, we either learn something for a blues people or we lose the whole project of humanity.
a serious, serious issue. And there are three fundamental elements when it comes to talking about at the heights black music. Black music is the greatest artistic breakthrough in the most barbaric of 20th century. That's why it's global. Even Korea. The Korean pop. BTS. TXT. Urban Cafe and so forth. Black musical rhythm shot through with the Korean language so magnificent. What is it about the music? It's not mere entertainment. It's first about catastrophe. For too long, we believe, oh, America has a race problem. It's three years ago now we lost Brother George Floyd Jr. in. America never had a race problem. There's been catastrophes visited on black people. America's never had a indigenous people's problem. There's been a war against precious indigenous peoples ever since the European settlers arrived. That's not a problem. That's catastrophes visited every day. There's never been a woman's problem. There's catastrophes visited on women. There's never been a gay lesbian problem. There are catastrophes visited on gay brothers and lesbian sisters. And my God, when we get to the precious trans, it's not a problem. And anybody who reduces a catastrophe to a problem is trying to deodorize the funk. Don't deodorize our funk. If I got a catastrophe and you call it a problem, you're probably a member of the professional managerial class that's trying to come up with a problem to make it so manageable that when you respond to it, you think you've actually solved it and the catastrophe still goes on, on, and on, and on, and on. But the musicians remind us it's a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. yes, right. Billie Holiday sings strange fruit. You know she ain't singing about no problem. No. No. Brother Maripol, the Jewish brother writing the lyrics, he ain't writing about no problem. No. How do you respond to a catastrophe? If you think to respond to catastrophes, throw a little grenade in order to dissipate the fog, then you're going to exert all of your energy, and then get so frustrated because the problem persists. And that's why it's so difficult to deal with legacies of vicious white supremacy. You see? Well, we got legislation. Thank God we solved that problem. <laughs> we still got black folk hanging from trees. Yeah. Oh, we got the woman's problem. Oh, we finally got a woman mayor or governor. Thank God we solved the woman's problem now. You still got violence. You still got patriarchal perception. Oh, let's get a gay brother, lesbian, sister, even trans. Put them up in corporate America. Maybe we, we finally deal with the DEI response to the problem. Oh, we got some diversity, and we got some equity, and we got some inclusion now. We finally got our hands around the problem. Get off the crack pipe. You're dealing with a legacy of a catastrophe. I'm not against diversity, equity, inclusion, but I don't want just a more 
colorful empire and you're still treating poor people like they're less than human. I don't want a, a more colorful class hierarchy and you're still treating poor people in different colors as if they're less than human. I don't want more multiculturalism that doesn't come to terms with deep forms of love and justice so that people can feel as if when they wake up in the morning, they say, I can flower and flourish. I've got access to the resources. So we got three individuals in America that have wealth equivalent to the bottom 50%. That's the key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right. <laughs> Unbelievable greed. That's just one small example. One top 1% 1 of the population have wealth equivalent to the bottom 90%. 60% of our fellow citizens living from check to check in month to month. And yet all of that wealth at the top. Just yesterday they signed what? Had an agreement now on the debt ceiling. And the result is what? More cuts for poor people. More cuts for working people. But one exception, the military budget can remain on steroids. We won't touch it. Both parties consent to it. So we keep 800 military units around the world. We spend trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars on war, but can hardly find a penny when it comes to quality education, health care for all, Jobs with a living wage as the attack on the trade union movement escalates, but wait to see what happens this summer with the trade union movement. It's gonna be intense, August 1. But UPS, trade union movement on the way back, trying to do what? Protect those who have been pushed aside. And one of the reasons why neo-fascism has escalated so quickly Certainly not because of the eloquence of Trump. <laughs> oh, no. My dear brother Trump is a dead-up gangster. No doubt about that. And he's proud of it. He's very honest about it. He's honest about it. But is that so many of those working people have been crushed, and they look for a way out and they follow a neo-fascist Pied Piper because not enough people have spoken to their wounds and their sense of being losers given the corporate globalization where much of the wealth is hemorrhaged at the top and not enough jobs with a living wage for people across the board no matter what color. So that they'd rather opt for scapegoating the most vulnerable rather than courageously confronting the most powerful. And it partly has to do with what, again, we can learn from the best of the black freedom struggle, which is how do you break the back of fear? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's the problem. That's the challenge. Because see, for 400 years, white supremacists tried to convince black people we're less beautiful, we're less moral. 
We're less intelligent and we want you to be so scared and intimidated and walking around laughing when it ain't funny and scratching when it don't itch and always deferring to whatever we want. We want fear inside of you. And the only thing that breaks the back of fear is love and light. We discovered that on the streets of Ferguson and other places. Folk who are walking around scared. Look around and say, ooh, somebody believes in me. Somebody loves me. Somebody's willing to sacrifice for me. Somebody's even willing to die for me. My God, I need to change my perception of myself. And this is true for any subjugated people. It could be disabled. It could be the aged. It could be working people, poor people of any color. But the target, especially black folk, and the response to that fear has always been, sometimes all we can do is sing a song to break the back of words because those words are so inadequate. And in singing that song, we can straighten our backs up and constitute a community so we can attempt to achieve what James Baldwin called the impossible. And you have to embark on achieving the impossible in order to achieve what you could not conceive of. My grandmother prayed for the impossible. Yes, sir. Which was for me to stay in my right mind long enough. <laughs> That's a major achievement. <laughs> Black man almost 70 years old, still in his right mind. And then building on that brother used to play organ in my church, the Shiloh Baptist Church on the chocolate side of Sacramento. We knew him as Sylvester, but he's known to the world as Sly Stone. Oh, yeah, he's coming down from Vallejo. And he'd write a song called Stan, you've been sitting much too long. My brothers and sisters from Louisiana know what I'm talking about. Chris's parents, Stan, there's, there's a cross for you to bear, things to go through if you're going anywhere. Yes, stand means what? Can't be spineless. You're in a foxhole, you got to be willing to be reliable and trustworthy. We're not just talking about allies. I can't stand that language, ally, ally. It come to me and brother say, I want to be your ally. Hey, what? I don't want no ally. <laughs> want a courageous human being out of integrity and honesty and compassion that wants to fight with me in solidarity. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are. That's like saying Bill Evans and Miles Davis's quintet. White brother playing the piano as an ally. No, he's in the band. <laughs> he ain't no ally. <laughs> a brother Greg on the drums for Sly and the Family Stone, white brother. You think Sly and them would ever call him an ally? No, he's in the band. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. A black Clarence in the East Street band of a vanilla blues brother named Bruce Springsteen. You think he ever looked at Clarence as an ally? No, Clarence was in the band. They working together. That's what solidarity is. That's how you change the world. That's how you move forward. That's how you bear witness. That's how you generate new love warriors, new freedom fighters, new joy shares with a spirit. So what B.B. King would call a style and a smile. 
because the blues ain't nothing but a personal narrative of catastrophe lyrically engaged and lyrically expressed. Not a problem, but a catastrophe. And you do it with swing, which is the second element of black music. And what is swing? It's the different conception of time. So you're no longer wedded to the forms of time connected to the powers that be. You off the beat, you round the beat, you flatten the note out, you move up and down the scale. Why? Because that's your way of being in the world and now your conception of time is going to be radically different. And that's what Duke Ellington meant when he said it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. It don't mean a thing. Hank Aaron said the same thing. It don't mean a thing if he can't swing in such, in such timing that you can hit 714 of them. Muhammad Ali, he's not just an athlete, is he? He got swing in his style. He's moving in such a way that he's off a different kind of temporality that most people can't understand. How can you be moving that way and weigh 256 pounds and be 6'2"? I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> I come from a tradition that authorizes better futures, grander futures with a different conception of temporality. I don't get locked into dominant conceptions of time where I have to march in place. Amen. And so it is in our lives. We got so many especially people of color these days, to think it's all just about their upward mobility. More black folk on television, more black politicians, more black professors, more black doctors. That's the litmus test of progress in America as it relates to white supremacy. No, you start at the prison system. You start in mass incarceration. You start in the hood. You start with decrepit schools. You start with inadequate housing. You start with jobs that don't provide a living wage. That's the litmus test. My dear brother Al Sharpton, I love that brother. We've been fighting for 50 years. <laughs> Stood up the other day in one of his eulogies that he gave for Precious Tyree. God bless he and his family in Nashville. He said, Martin Luther King Jr. in his last speech went up on the mountaintop. And he said, I'm not going to get there with you, but I see we're going to make it. And what Martin Luther King Jr. saw was Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. I said, get off the crack pot. Uh. <laughs> That's not what Martin saw. No, no. Don't try to deodorize Martin. Keep the funk where it is. He's looking at the least of these, and probably what he saw was he saw some pharaohs in all colors. Talk, sir. He saw some black pharaohs. He saw some brown pharaohs. He saw some woman pharaohs. He saw some gay pharaohs. He saw some lesbian pharaohs. He saw some Muslim pharaohs. He saw some Buddhist pharaohs. They come in all cultures and all colors, but he's keeping track of the wretched of the earth. Yes, sir. Yes, That's what he's keeping track of. He wants to make sure that Jewish brothers and sisters are treated with dignity in Russia and France. He wants to make sure Palestinians are treated with dignity in the West Bank and Gaza. He wants to make sure that Muslims in China are treated with dignity. He wants to make sure Dalits in India are treated with dignity. He wants to make sure landless peasants in Brazil are treated with dignity. He wants to make sure that all of our precious physically challenged brothers and sisters are treated with dignity. That's the Martin King we know. 
but he gets so sanitized and sterilized that it's all about just marching in the time of the powers that be rather than keeping the swing that's connected to the suffering, connected to the hurt and pains and wounds and scars and bruises across color and country. And this is what is so very difficult, you see. You try to tell our precious fellow citizens in America that a life in Iran and Iraq has exactly the same value as a life in Seattle. And they think you a traitor. No, we are patriots. It's America first. We're only concerned about American lives. How many lives were lost in Iraq? 4,000 US soldiers, each life precious. How many Iraqi lives? They never tell us. Some say a million, some say two-thirds of a million, others say half a million. Each life in Iraq has the same value as a life in America. That's true in Lithuania, that's true in Brazil, that's true in Ethiopia, across the board. That's part of trying to keep alive the best of any people's tradition concerned with love and freedom and joy. And last but not least though, in addition to the blues wrestling with catastrophe, in addition to swing trying to generate, generate different forms of time and temporality that authorize better futures, futures that people can hardly see because those futures are invisible, but not yet. That's operating in the what is. You just have to look close enough, deep enough to see the Valleys and Martins institutions that's bringing people together. But last but not least is improvisation. Flexible, fluid, protein, anti-dogmatic, against being ossified, against being petrified, against being stationary and static, always in the flow. And it's not a technical skill. It is more than that. It is a form of what the Greeks call phronesis, practical wisdom. So when you engage in an improvisational way of being in the world, what you're trying to do is to make sure you are seeing things more clearly and broadly and feeling things more deeply, especially the cries of the least of these, and act acting more courageously, not just individually, but part of institutions and structures and movements. And when you see different, and feel differently and hear more deeply and willing to straighten your back up and act more courageously, then you have the distillation of hope. Because hope's not just a virtue, it's a verb. It has to be enacted. It has to be embodied. It's got to be fleshified. It has to be in movement. You have to be doing something. You got to be engaging in that way. Love is the same way, not just a virtue. It's a verb. The touch, the connection, the hug, the tears, that beautiful moment with the prayers of the precious mother. It's love in action. That's what the great traditions 
not just my own, but traditions of all peoples, especially oppressed people, need to be accented in our day and time if we're going to somehow make a way through these neo-fascist times. And the question is, do we have what it takes? Who? Yes. Oh, you don't know. <laughs> you just don't. You don't want to lie. We don't have control of the future. But we say this, that we're not going to allow anything to get in our way. We're going to go down swinging in the name of a love and a justice with each other and then see what the end going to be. God bless y'all. Stay strong here. That was philosopher, scholar of African-American studies, and activist Dr. Cornell West. He was in Seattle and spoke at the Rainier Arts Center on the prophetic tradition in the face of neo-fascism. He spoke as part of Valley and Mountain Fellowship's Set Us Free from Fear series. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.